Hello and welcome to Talking About Tumors with Ryan and Ryan. I'm Ryan Holstead. And I'm Ryan Quinn. And today we're going to hone in on one specific trial, the ADORA trial, looking at adjuvant osimertinib for completely resected EGFR-positive lung cancer. We apologize for the delay in getting this episode out to you guys. Been having a lot of changes recently. Recently bought a house, so I'm making a lot of trips to Home Depot and are currently recording from coastal Maine on vacation. We've chosen specifically to look at the ADORA trial because I think this is a good study to highlight some important um, evidence appraisal, as well as look at limitations with adjuvant trials in the modern uh, clinical trial environment. This has been a fairly controversial study. There's been over 50 publications, both on this paper and analyzing this paper, and a lot of uh, criticisms from it by vocal um, evidence-based experts such as people like uh, Vinay Prasad, Bishop Kawali, Jack West, who've extensively pointed out some flaws with this study. And we're going to do our best to try to take a look at the evidence, present the study, and highly recommend to take a look at the original publications, the ASCO presentations, as well as criticisms from these authors as well. So as we know, non-small cell lung cancer does have a high rate of recurrence even after resection, and many patients are candidates for post-operative chemotherapy. This study was looking at patients with EGFR mutations, looking at three years of adjuvant osimertinib, the third generation TKI, in the adjuvant setting. Now, there have been many prior studies looking at first-generation TKIs in this same setting. Gifitinib was looked at versus chemotherapy, specifically cisplatin, vinorelbine, in a phase 3 study. It did show a disease-free survival benefit, but ultimately ended up showing no overall survival benefit. The Gifitinib trial was powered for overall survival, and at its initial analysis, they did find such a significant improvement in disease-free survival that they actually stopped enrollment. Um, due to the thought that this drug was so superior to chemotherapy. However, at the follow-up overall survival final analysis, they did not find improved overall survival. So although this prevented disease from coming back sooner, it did not lead to better overall survival. One of the limitations, of course, is because they stopped further enrollment. Um, The study was then underpowered to look at that primary endpoint. Uh, Similar findings were seen with erlotinib, where they did improve disease for survival, but overall survival has never been shown in these um, first-generation TKIs. If you recall, these first-generation TKIs do not have CNS penetration, so one of the potential limitations is the disease would still recur in the brain, and at that time there's very limited options uh, beyond radiation or chemotherapy to address this. So as we know from the FLORA study, osimertinib is superior to the first-generation TKIs in the metastatic setting and does have better penetration of the blood-brain barrier. The question that this study was asking is using osimertinib in the adjuvant setting for three years. Does this improve disease-free survival for these patients? Of note, compared to the trials with the first-generation TKIs in this study, patients could receive chemotherapy. So this was not comparing osimertinib to chemotherapy. This was comparing osimertinib plus or minus chemotherapy for three years. So just a subtle difference in between this study and the prior studies. Yeah, so this was a randomized placebo-controlled trial, phase three. They included patients older than the age of 18 with a performance status of zero or one. Uh, when the style trial was initiated, we were still using the AJCC 7th edition for staging. So the trial included patients using that addition with stage 1b, 2, and 3a disease. Patients had to have complete, which would be an R0 resection, so negative, um, no evidence of cancer at the borders. 
they all had to have exon 19 deletion or L858R mutations for EGFR. The surgery selection could, could be as per um, local center's choice. And chemo was allowed, as Ryan mentioned, but not mandated. And this was a global study. Also, patients were not allowed to receive adjuvant radiation. The primary outcome was disease-free survival, specifically in the stage 2 and 3A patients. And they did a and they did a hierarchical design where after analyzing the primary outcome, they would then look at disease-free survival in all patients. So that's including the stage 1B patients. And then if that was significant, then they would look at overall survival. However, the trial was not powered for overall survival. The trial was powered at 80% to show a hazard ratio of 0.7. And that would give an alpha of 5% two-sided. Patients were stratified by stage, by mutation type, whether that was an 858R or exon 19 deletion, and whether or not they were of Asian ethnicity. They did have some pre-specified exploratory endpoints, such as the sites of recurrence and the time to CNS recurrence. And they also looked at safety and health-related quality of life, which is always important in these adjuvant studies, especially if you're going to be taking the drug for three years. The initial design was actually amended, um, leading to the first publication in 2020. These clinical trials have monitoring committees, which have pre-specified how often to review the data to make sure that the treatment is not futile or not so significant that will lead to an early ending of the trial. During a pre-specified futility analysis, the investigators did not identify any signs of futility. However, when they looked at the data without statistical analysis, they thought saw such a difference in disease-free survival that they scheduled an unplanned uh, superiority analysis. So basically an extra look at the data to see whether or not um, there is a statistically high level of superiority of the investigational drug. When that analysis came back positive, that led to the initial publication. It is very standard for clinical trials to do these um, planned analyses. A bit less com- um, common to do an unplanned analysis. The more times you look at data, the more chances there are to have a chance difference between the two arms. So because they looked at the data in an additional time, they also had to amend it, um, their protocol to have additional number of events between the two arms to still maintain superiority. And in, in this case, as we'll get to, because the magnitude of benefit was so large, this really did not uh, significantly alter our ability to appraise the final results of the data. So this first unplanned analysis was published in October 2020 in the New England Journal, and it included 682 patients. About a third were stage 1B, a third were stage 2, and one third were stage 3. And again, this is using the 7th edition staging system, not the current 8th edition. When looking at the patients, most of them had received a lobectomy, which is the preferred surgery. Again, the vast majority of patients were adenocarcinoma, as we know, with EGFR positive. Looking at the patients who received chemotherapy, most of the patients that were stage 2 and 3. The results of the first unplanned analysis that was done were published in October 2020 in the New England Journal, and it included 682 patients. About one-third were stage 1B, one-third were stage 2, and one-third were stage 3A. And again, this is the old staging system, the 7th edition. The majority of these patients had a lobectomy, as per local standard of care. And in terms of the patients that had received chemotherapy, because again, that was optional at the investigator's 
discretion. The majority of the stage 2 and 3A patients did. So 75% of those patients received adjuvant chemotherapy and 25% of the stage 1B patients received chemotherapy. Looking at the primary outcome, DFS, specifically in the stage 2 and 3 patients, at 24 months, the disease-free survival was 90% with osimertinib and 44% with placebo with a ha- for hazard ratio of 0.17. When you look at the total population, so everyone including the stage 1B patients, the 2-year over the 2-year disease-free survival was 89% versus 52% with a hazard ratio of 0.2. The overall survival data are immature at that time. And looking specifically at the risk of recurring within the brain or CNS, the 2-year CNS disease-free recurrence was 98% versus 85%. As hazard ratios are a relative uh, risk, it, it's important to be aware of what the risk of recurrence is in the control arm because that does play a role in how the magnitude of your relative risk. Um, for example, colon cancer, whether adding oxaliplatin to 5-FU has a hazard ratio of 0.8, whether that's stage 2 or stage 3 disease. However, in stage 3 disease, that represents an absolute risk reduction of 15% um, for disease recurrence versus 4% in stage 2. Although as providers, the hazard ratio is usually more reliable because it gives a more longitudinal um, comparison between arms, knowing these absolute differences are more helpful to present to our patients. It's important to be cognizant of both of these. In the case of this study, where we're looking at a um, High rate of recurrence in the control group. We're looking at disease-free survival of 43% and a hazard ratio of 0.2. This was a highly positive finding and was lauded at the time during the plenary session meeting at ASCO. The disease-free survival was also improved regardless of whether or not the patients got chemotherapy. So when they looked at the subgroups of patients who received chemo versus the ones who didn't, there was still a disease-free survival benefit with the osimertinib. Now, talking about safety, many of the common adverse events that we already know with osimertinib were seen, such as diarrhea, paronychia, skin rash, stomatitis, cough, puritis. 3% of patients in the osimertinib group did have ILDs, interstitial lung disease, versus zero in the placebo group. When we talked about osimertinib in the MADSTAC setting, we discussed these side effects. And as discussed there, these are typically mild, especially compared to other palliative chemotherapy at regimens we may be giving. They're not without side effects and certainly things to counsel your patients on. We do have to take into account that sometimes these mild side effects can be more notable when we're in the adjuvant setting, especially if it's going to go on for three years. And the ILD or pneumonitis was was more often grade one or two. Um, it's usually responsive to steroids and is of lesser severity than when we talk about uh, high-grade pneumonitis with immune checkpoint inhibitors. So quite a significant uh, hazard ratio at this initial publication. There was a follow-up publication, so the final disease-free survival was analyzed uh, three years later and published in early 2023. At this updated analysis, the hazard ratio had increased to 0.23, slightly smaller uh, difference between groups, however still uh, highly significant. Um, at this point, patients had 44 months of follow-up, and looking at specifically the stage 2 to 3A group at four years, the disease-free survival was 73% versus 38%. Looking directly at the Kaplan-Meier curves, we do see that at that after that three-year point, um, the curves start to get closer together. This is relevant because, if you recall, the osimertinib is given or placebo is given for three years, and it does seem that there's a number of patients that begin to have recurrence after that three-year stop point. On the other side of things, the control arm, most of the recurrences are within the first two years, and you actually see kind of a leveling off of the curve. So most people that are going to recur recur early. 
those who get osimertib, if they're going to recover, most occur after that three-year time point. At this four-year follow-up, the CNS disease-free survival had matured and was reported at a total of two years follow-up, which was 90 versus 75%. Another thing worth noting at that initial uh, publication in 2020, at this point, investigators were given the opportunity to unblind patients who progressed and potentially offer them osimertib. So at this point, the median follow-up was 60 months, so five years, and the five-year overall survival was 85% versus 73% in the stage 2-3 patients with a hazard ratio of 0.49. Looking at all comers, so including stage 1B, it was 88% versus 78% with the same hazard ratio, 0.49. Similar to what we've seen before, the benefit was seen regardless of whether or not patients received adjunct chemotherapy, as well as regardless of the stage of the patient. It was also noted in this paper that, again, as Ryan had said, patients that did progress could be unblinded at the request of the investigator and get osimertinib open label if it was available in their country um, or if they had access to it. This is an important point to look at here because, as we know, since 2017, our preferred first-line agent at the time of mastitis disease is osimertinib. So it's important to look at what patients did get when they ended up recurring or developing mastitis disease. And we do see that 22% of people who received osimertinib versus 54% of the control group ultimately did receive subsequent therapy. So this would be most people who recurred, although some patients presumably recurred and for one reason or another did not receive um, further systemic therapy, either due to uh, patient preference or inability to tolerate therapy or, of course, the difficulty accessing this. Of those who did receive subsequent therapy, um, only 40 3% of the control group ever received osimertinib. So 23% of the total control arm at some point received osimertinib. Of those who did have recurrent disease, only 43% were getting this third TKI, which would be our preferred agent in that setting. Most patients who did receive a TKI received a first or second generation therapy, such as gefitinib or, or lotinib. Unfortunately, prior to 2020, it's unclear how many would have uh, received uh, osimertinib or whether or not that was even fully allowed by the trial protocol. Um, it's difficult to tell re by reading the ProCal itself, although we do know that, that since 2017, Flora had shown that this was our preferred first-line agent. Yeah, it was kind of interesting wording. You know, they said that the protocol amendment allowed pa eligible patients to receive osimertinib open-label at recurrence if you know, a standard of care in the local setting where they were being treated and available. And they do mention in the discussion that this may have limited the osimertinib use in the post-protocol therapy, given that prior to this amendment, it seems like patients were not able to be unblinded and receive osimertinib at recurrence. So to kind of summarize this trial, this was a phase three randomized placebo-controlled trial looking at the use of adjuvant osimertinib following surgery plus or minus chemotherapy for stage 1b to 3a uh, EGFR positive non-small cell lung cancer. And this was a positive trial um, looking at the specific endpoint of DFS and did show overall survival benefits at the follow-up analysis in the global population. The effect of which does appear to wane after the three month um, after the three years of this adjuvant therapy being given. This trial highlights um, a lot of challenges that we face currently with adjuvant studies and some, some notable flaws with the modern study design, especially those being run in a global environment. Yeah, there's a lot of opinions out there, and you know we definitely recommend everyone reading the trial. 
themselves first. I know sometimes it's much easier to read the editorial or other people's opinions of the trial, but you know, it's definitely worth it to read it and make your own opinions before reading other people's opinions. But one of the major limitations of this trial, which was that MRI brains were not required at baseline. This is pretty standard of care in the United States, at least, because there can be occult brain metastasis when somebody is first diagnosed. And there likely were probably some patients with metastatic disease at baseline that were included in this trial because this screening was left out. And the presence of these patients with metastatic disease could have definitely affected the results because, as we know, osimertinib is superior in the metastatic setting. Yeah, both the allowance to specify whether or not to use an MRI prior to initiating an osimertinib as well as the as well as not mandating osimertinib be given at the time of recurrence um, was justified by the investigators of this study because this is a global trial and they do claim that in other countries they may not have access to MRI or osimertinib um, at the NASDAQ setting. The drawback with this is if someone doesn't have access to osimertinib in the mass stack setting, they probably won't eventually get access to it in the adjuvant setting. And in countries that do have access to osimertinib MRI, well, we're not really able to make as much of a clear claim whether or not giving it sooner rather than later is important. This is a challenge a lot with global trials. You know, by improving access and availability of this trial adds additional limitations that then have to be looked at critically. And hopefully with as trials run further, there can be some more streamlining of these uh, recurrent discussions that come up with many of the modern trials that have been coming in the last few years. It seems like they weren't really answering the question of does osimertinib in the adjuvant setting improve overall survival as opposed to giving it later. It ended up being more like does osimertinib in the adjuvant setting, does it improve survival as opposed to not getting it at all even when you recur, which was not really the question that I don't think they were aiming to ask. I do not think that disease-free survival should have been used as the primary endpoint for the study. This has been discussed again and again for many adjuvant trials. There is room to debate in some disease settings, but here specifically, disease-free survival um, has been previously shown to be unreliable. And looking at the prior Jafitinib trial, we've seen a drug that's given improvement in disease-free survival that did not end up showing overall survival. And in that, that trial, most patients, the majority of patients who recurred did get a first-generation TKI recurrence. So that did give a more accurate representation of giving sooner rather than later. And also, as we mentioned previously, the study did not compare adjuvant osimertinib to adjuvant chemotherapy because it allowed investigators to give chemotherapy at their discretion and then randomize patients to osimertinib afterwards or not. So if you're trying to decide, you know, should I give someone osimertinib or chemotherapy, this doesn't answer the question. You would make your judgment as to if the patient you thought was a cancer for chemotherapy and then give the osimertinib afterwards. 75% of the patients with stage 2 or 3 did receive chemotherapy, and about a quarter of patients of the stage 1b received chemotherapy. So you can keep those numbers in mind when you're making the decision. I think it's going to be very difficult for many cost-conscious payers to make an informed decision based upon this trial alone. And uh, within the United States, the cost of osimertinib on a year per patient has been estimated around $200,000. Although those costs may be less than other countries, that's still a significant cost. And there'll be many patients who are candidates for therapy, so the, the cost is not unsubstantial. That's another question. Given that we saw a lot of patients recur after the three years of osimertinib, you know, does that mean that we should be continuing this longer? You know, what is the optimal duration? Are we really curing these patients or 
Are we just delaying the time to recurrence? You know, are these drugs tumor-cidal or tumor-static? Are they just kind of delaying the growth until you stop them? These are all questions that we're not really sure that warrant some clarification. Yeah, I mean, certainly it's valuable if you can delay recurrence by three years, um, especially if this was to be a cranial recurrence, because cranial recurrences can often be catastrophic, and these patients may not end up having the opportunity to receive further therapy. A good question would be if we did MRIs up front for all the patients, would we be able to identify these patients sooner? I don't know. This trial doesn't really answer that question. When I first read this study, there was kind of some major questions that would come to my mind looking at an adjuvant trial using a drug that has proven improved survival in the mass stack setting. And those questions would be, does giving this earlier rather than later, so giving this in the adjuvant setting, um, improve survival compared to giving it in the mass-stack setting. And as we, I think we've highlighted here, that question was not answered. Another question would be, does three years cure the disease or does it just delay recurrence? Looks like it may delay many patients. I, I don't know if this trial answers the question if there's additional people cured, given the overall survival being a secondary endpoint. Finally, uh, another important thing is, is osimertinib efficacious in this setting? Well, we already know that this is a very efficacious drug. And I think that these, the magnitude of disease-free survival just confirms what most oncologists already knew, that osimertinib works for EGFR-positive non-small cell lung cancer. But more importantly, does it help these people live longer and live better? And um, I think that that remains a, a bit of an unclear question. I find the adjuvant discussion for all systemic therapy, whether that's breast, colon, or now, lung cancer to be one of the most difficult discussions to have with patients. You take people who've been told by the surgeon that they've had everything removed, and now you're trying to justify giving them more toxic medications to improve the chance that they're cured and remain disease-free. Um, in the adjuvant breast cancer and colon cancer, we have good evidence to support taking drug X increases your chance of cure by so-and-so to help patients make that informed decision. Although we do see a very large hazard ratio here, and we do know that more Patient, fewer patients have disease recurrence at three years. I don't think I can as easily give that um, likelihood of cure or that likelihood of being alive as longer because to most patients that I see in my clinic, if they did recur, I'm going to give them most emergent in the mass-stack setting. And even though I have a large hazard ratio based off of, even though we as oncologists understand what those means, patients don't. And it's nice to have a bit more of a finite number to, to help bring to our patients to help them make their own decision. Yeah, definitely. I think it puts oncologists in a tough spot because this is now approved, at least in the United States, for adjuvant treatment. You know, asking if I would offer this to patients, there is a large disease-free survival benefit. We don't know about the overall survival benefit, given the some of the limitations of the study. You know, my personal view is would offer it, but I think it probably does have an overall survival benefit, but we don't know based on how the study was run. Yeah, I think that given the general relative tolerability of this drug, it's something I would offer to my patients as well. Most of the side effects that do occur are time limited. We stop when you stop the drug. And I think I would try to present it away, especially patients with high risk of recurrence, um, with the caveats that we've outlined here to the best of my ability. And certainly if a future trial is open up, looking at things such as better identifying patients with high likelihood of disease, maybe using MRIs prior to randomization to osimertinib, or maybe something using circulating tumor DNA, I think would be trials I'd be very interested in. Uh, would be moving my patients to consider joining. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, just in the bigger picture, one of the great things to come out of this study and a lot of the backlash that has come out of this study is more and more people are starting to realize the limitations of doing, you know, these large trials as well as some of the ethical considerations. So maybe 
you know, once we start hearing some more of these voices, it'll change how trials get run in the future. So looking at the bottom lines, many patients with resected lung cancer do end up recurring. We see here in the control arm, uh, 60% did ultimately have disease recurrence. Um, And although the prognosis is better in EGFR-positive lung cancer, the risk of recurrence is still high. Osimertinib is an effective, tolerable therapy um, that we now have um, approval and ability to discuss with patients who are at risk, especially those with high stage, like stage 3A. The recent data that just came out showed five-year overall survival of 85% in the osimertinib group versus 73% in the placebo group for the stage 2 and 3 patients. And looking at the overall population, including the stage 1B, is 88% versus 78%. And both groups had a hazard ratio of 0.49. However, there are some limitations in the post-protocol therapy, especially um, in the study, whereas only 43% of patients in the placebo group received osimertinib at the time of relapse, whereas it really is considered standard of care in the metastatic setting. We hope this was a useful discussion that we highlighted some, some points of interest. Happy to hear any comments or feedback on our Twitter or via email. And next discussion, we'll be moving into stage three disease, which is also a very complicated area of non-small cell lung cancer with new evidence emerging yearly. Yep. So stay tuned and hope everyone is enjoying the end of summer. Bye for now. Take care. For more information, follow us on Twitter at Talking Tumors, or feel free to email us at talkingabouttumors at gmail.com. Please rate and review the podcast. We really appreciate it. And special shout out to our friend John Kim for all of his musical talents. He's the composer of the music that you're hearing right now. Talking about tumors is not medical advice. For medical advice, please contact your own healthcare provider. Please stay on this podcast or by the Ryan who said it and no one else. We have no financial disclosures and this is done purely on our own time to the sake of our enjoyment of the field of medical oncology. Thank you for listening and see you next time.